Super Talk Mississippi media production. Did you know Toyota Brookhaven has sold more new vehicles the last two years than any other dealership in southwest Mississippi? Come see why. Exit 40 Brookhaven or online at toyotabrookhaven.com. Great service, great savings. At Toyota Brookhaven, we deliver. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to midday super talk mississippi i'm your host gerard gibbert and i'm on location today at the oxford conference center for the ole miss school of business annual banking symposium the 20th annual rhino safe and sound back in the super talk headquarters we'll be guiding you through the middle of your day with facts fodder and fine music on this friday y'all <laughs> it certainly is. We welcome to the program now Dr. Ken Syree, Dean of the School of Business Administration, also the Frank R. Day Mississippi Bankers Association Chair of Banking and Professor of Finance. Dr. Syree, looks like another good event here, the 20th annual. Isn't that correct? It's 22nd. 22nd, okay. We, I, I had dated we lost information. count in COVID there. <laughs> yeah. at, uh, and it may, it may be 23rd. I don't know. It's hard to keep up sometimes. But, yeah, 20-something, that's yeah. close enough. We know that's safe. But, yeah, it's been a great day. And, yeah, you're right. You guys do have good bumper music. You know, I, I always enjoy listening to that, too. It's from our era, I think. That, Absolutely. That's helpful. Yes, sir. Uh, but, yeah, it's going to be a great day. It already has been a great day. We've had some excellent speakers already this morning. And right now, Coach Bianco's speaking, and uh, he always does a great job and helps us out. And uh, he's he's uh, such a good speaker, and he's had a lot of great experiences. And, you know, as I, I said earlier, that uh, a lot of his experiences in sports, any sport really, mirrors what we've seen in, in the industry of yeah. banking. Uh, you know, you have uncertainty. You have uh, sometimes turmoil. You have things happen you don't expect. You have uh, things you have to adjust to, and that's kind of been the last 18 months in the industry. So this is a very timely symposium. We've got great speakers. We'll talk about the economy and interest rates. We'll talk about mergers and acquisitions. We'll talk about fintech. Uh, we'll talk about digital assets today. Um, talent, hiring talent, things of that nature. So it'll be, it'll be just a great day, that I think, uh, for us here. Well, all are, are certainly current topics of interest in the financial and the banking industry, which uh, since we were here last year, I think it's safe to say has experienced a, a bit of tumult. And uh, but, but, you know, there were predictions, I think, of it being in a little worse situation once we saw Silicon Valley Bank uh, experience its problems uh, back in the spring. But the overall seems to be pretty stable, and, and a lot of the big guys have have, um, have announced fairly decent earnings and, and decent outlook as well, decent guidance, I think, to our surprise. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, I remember talking to Paul Gallo a day or two after it happened, and, and he asked me, in effect, that, you know, did 
well, did they do something stupid? And my answer was roughly, well, yes. In fact, if my undergraduate students and graduates did this, I would be upset. Yeah. So luckily, that did not extend to most banks. Most bankers, right. especially in Mississippi, are pretty conservative. So they, when they see rising interest rate environments, they don't buy long-term bonds. Right, which is what they did. That's exactly what they did. And not only that, they had a lot of uninsured deposits. And uh, th they ran, basically. It's like the old school, you know, uh, a wonderful life movie with Jimmy Stewart there where we had the bank run it's a wonderful life yeah and the banks have figured out that uh, they can be nimble and adjust and they can be fine but if you get on the wrong side of some of those things like uh, signature in Silicon Valley did you can literally go out of business of course uh, they they didn't go out of business they got bailed out right but, but uh, still, that was a, a huge problem. And luckily, it, did, it, did it didn't. It sent shockwaves through the industry. It absolutely sent shockwaves through the industry. And a lot of the regional banks, particularly, they were uh, concerned. Yeah. And I think those concerns have not gone away. They've diminished, but we're still worried about interest rates. Uh, you know, you can. Uh, you can predict all day long. I, I do think we'll see another 25 basis points or a quarter of a point, uh, and, and maybe two before we're done uh, but but nobody knows yeah you know, and nobody really knows know. and of course that's everybody's trying to predict that and uh, they're making investment decisions on that basis banks are making lending decisions on that basis to the extent they can we we, we have seen that uh, I guess a lot of customers who otherwise would be in the market for credit, it's kind of pushed them out of the credit. The other thing that concerns me, uh, Dr. Sire, is uh, so much of this, this uh, commercial paper that's out there that's at relatively low interest rates, uh, ha having been originated two, three years ago in the 2 to 3% range, now they go back to refinance that, and they're in the 7 8% range. That's right. Uh, when you start to roll over things, it gets difficult because it, it, most most commercial businesses, you've really kind of got two paths. One, if you want, this is kind of uh, uh, simplified here, but operating expenses typically are going to be pretty short term. So you might borrow money three months, six months, a year, something like that. So those are starting to roll over. Yeah. You might have capital expenditures that you finance over longer periods of time. Some of those, of course, would roll over, but that's not for the moment, for most businesses, that's not the problem. Usually just retires, expires that's, out. That's right. That's right. So, yeah, it can. And the thing that is uh, difficult for some people to understand uh, is that these expenses affect virtually every business, Absolutely. certainly that borrows money, right? As those costs go up, they only have a couple of options. One is to pass those costs along to the consumer, and many of them would do that, right? If you're building apartment. Uh, buildings or something like that, you might raise the rent, or or you might not be able to, depending on competitive conditions, sure. which means your profits go down, and then you might might decide, well, you know, if I, I cannot make a living here, I'll go do something different. So it really does have a broad effect and impact uh, over and above the normal things that we think about. You know, there, there's a lot of people that look at these projects, maybe acquiring another institution of some sort. It doesn't have to be a bank, but it could be. And once those costs go up, it may not make that acquisition profitable. Yeah. Or that new building or that new restaurant or whatever we're thinking of building may now not be viable as rates go up. Yeah. I mean, when they start plugging that into the various ROI and IRR models, and it comes out and says, no, don't do this, essentially. Exactly. Uh, tell us about the university and the B-School in particular, record enrollment uh, at the university. Is, is that filtering down to the B-School as It well? absolutely is. We've got record enrollment in the business school. We'll, we will be, and these are unofficial numbers, of course. I have to throw that caveat in there, but uh, we'll be around... 
probably 4,900 or so and change wow. uh, in the business school. That does not include accounting, where the right. accounting will be over 6,200. Hmm. Uh, the freshmen will be a, around 1,500 or so. Uh, again, not official numbers, but it's just incredible. Uh, I think three years ago, maybe even two, we were at about 900 freshmen. So we've gone from 900 wow. freshmen in the business school to 1,500. So That's awesome. It's a great problem to have, but yeah. it does create some challenges sometimes. Yeah. Know, where are we going to put them on all that? But uh, but I think it points to the, the great value that we are. We've got wonderful professors and staff, and uh, we have small classes compared to many universities and we really focus on undergraduate education and try to provide a great experience for our students and I think that uh, is a lot of why we're having such great success and to be fair all across the south I see business schools doing really well so I think people are figuring out that getting a business degree is a good thing and uh, you know luckily we're in that market and uh, we've, we've benefited from that too. Is that translating into uh, good job prospects upon graduation? You see in the employers? Yeah it is. Uh, the last number I saw we had about 96 percent placement for wow. the people not going on to graduate school so that's pretty good. I think our average starting salary was was 55,000 uh, which you know I was going to apply for some jobs myself but they said <laughs> I look too old for a freshman maybe but uh, you know that that to me that's that's a big number for Mississippi. That really. is awesome. It's a great number. And in some of our spots, we're getting 60 or 65,000 starting wow. salaries. So it depends on the field. But a, a lot of uh, great internships, a lot of growth in the school. Uh, much of that's been intentional. We've got, we've got our uh, entrepreneurship program going great guns. We've got our new center for insurance transformation. We've got a lot of things going on that are very exciting. A program called BASE in our sales program. That's been really, really uh, a great thing for us too to launch. And then our, our just our basic core uh, management, marketing, finance, and so on is also doing really, really well. Yeah. Well, uh, I think it says a lot about uh, you and your leadership, honestly, and, and the fact that you're growing enrollment, and the university is as well. I, I think it's a great environment, and, and, and students are, are being successful in, in landing productive employment upon graduation. The news really isn't that good across the country with respect to college enrollment. It's, it's on the downswing. That's true. The trends are not very good. I, you know, I'm not exactly sure why, why students choose... Uh, a certain school, but for sure I, they like the South. Yeah, they like the weather. I think they like the culture. They like uh, it. Doesn't hurt that we have SEC sports. Pr probably doesn't hurt that the football team's doing pretty well. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know. Last Nick Saban, how that worked out at Alabama. Yeah, it put it really did something there. Yeah, I recall talking to a student, and they were upset about uh, this. Is back when Nick Saban only made seven million, and they said that's <laughs> terrible. And I said, well, he's bringing a lot more than that into the university. It's, uh, yeah, the return on that investment. Return on that investment is pretty good. <laughs> I agree. Well, always a pleasure being here, and looking forward to speaking with uh, more of the guests here talking about uh, the, the banking industry and appreciate all your leadership at the University of Dr. Thank Sorry. you for the kind words. I appreciate yes, it. Yes, sir. We're coming right back, folks, with more. We're in the Element Well studio today at the University of Mississippi uh, School of Business Banking Symposium. Stay with us. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. 
Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's middays. We're in Oxford at the Oxford Conference Center for the University of Mississippi School of Business Annual Banking Symposium. We just heard from Dr. Ken Syree, Dean of the School of Business. Appreciate him coming on the program. More guests scheduled uh, from the financial industry as uh, the show progresses. This coverage is brought to you in part by the Citizens Bank, offering commercial and consumer checking accounts and CDs at competitive rates. So, Rhino, lots of news overnight, uh, for sure, uh, across the Fruited Plain. My understanding is we not only got a resolution passed up in Washington, I think the first uh, action by the new speaker, newly minted Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, that resolution essentially condemning Hamas and, and uh, showing this country's support, pledging this country's support for Israel, but I, I caught this morning, I haven't looked at the details yet, about another bill that I think is passed, which claws back like $5 billion of some of this green energy nonsense from the Biden administration. Of course, that likely, unfortunately, has no chance of passing in the Senate and, of course, no chance of getting to Joe Biden's desk. And if it did, if it just magically got through the Senate, doubtful he would sign off on it as it kind of reverses some of his prior actions but off and running the big task now is to get some money to run the government and we're down to uh, within about three weeks before we run out once again on this continuing resolution that was passed back in late september a 45-day measure that is going to expire, and that means the government's got to get busy you heard from congressman michael guest yesterday four bills of the twelve that fund the discretionary component of government already passed. So now the body is deliberating the eight other bills. This would be through regular order. This is, this is certainly a refreshing and welcome uh, change, honestly, is that it seems like we're always uh, in a fire drill trying to push some spending through. Ultimately, that ends up being passed in the form of these continuing resolutions. That was at the heart, the core, of Matt Gates seeking to oust Speaker McCarthy and invoking his privilege, calling for a snap vote. That, of course, happened a little less than a month ago, and then it's taken three weeks plus to get another speaker uh, with the gavel in their hand to oversee the House of Representatives, the People's House. But that's where we are, and it'll be interesting to watch that. Of course, uh, yesterday at Hobnob, I understand that we had rather fiery speeches, shall we say, Rhino. You see this from candidate for governor as a Democrat, Brandon Presley, and, of course, the existing sitting incumbent candidate, Governor Tate Reeves. They offered rather competing views of a post-election future at the big MEC Hobnob event last night. Uh, I, we weren't there, of course, but um, we were doing the show. We uh, received some reports, though, that Mr. Presley uh, got um, almost a bit angry in his tone. Uh, it's about 15 minutes 
of course, each of the candidates railed on the other. Presley, once again, really focused on attacking the governor and his stance on Medicaid, said he believes he could work better with Republican legislators than Reeves could. That's interesting. That would, that would sort of concern me as, uh, as it relates to these Republican legislators, honestly. He, uh, the governor, of course, he, he talked a lot about his successes over the past 12 years as lieutenant governor and governor. Su suggested that population growth in Mississippi is growing, that there have been some $6 billion in, in new working capital investment in the state. He touted the increase in per capita income in the state. He talked about the, the many accomplishments in the education realm in the state of Mississippi. Uh, I mean, these are all fair talking points. The, the governor uh, is sitting in that position, as, and of course, as lieutenant governor, was instrumental in much of that success. So that's absolutely uh, something that he should be talking about. He also discussed the 14 federal disasters. I didn't know it was 14 that occurred during his first year in office and how he believes that those were handled in a positive uh, manner. Presley mimicked, I guess is one word you could use, the talking points from the campaign of supporting an expansion of Medicaid. It, it just seems like that once again Medicaid expansion has kind of elevated to be the top issue in this campaign. Would you agree with that, Rhino? Does that just seem like it? Certainly Mr. Presley has done all that he can in his campaign to promote Medicaid expansion is just like the big difference between him and the governor and how he's on the right side of that decision. He criticized the governor for opposing it really at every turn. And he was also critical of the governor for only agreeing to one debate. Well, okay, I, I, I'm going to be critical of Mr. Presley for not coming on this program. <laughs> he, he should come on. Um, and I would still extend, as we have uh, over the last couple of weeks, if anybody's listening, an invitation. Come on the program and, and let's talk. Let's discuss the issues and where he stands on those. And let's have a meaningful, respectful, civil discussion about that. We certainly can do that. I pledge to do that if you'd be willing to come on. He talked about the other states controlled by Republican majorities, which have turned to Medicaid expansion, such as Oklahoma and South Dakota, and, of course, Medicaid expansion is a provision of the Affordable Care Act that was passed in 2010. What really shocks me, folks, is that how nobody is talking about the other option, which is the uh, um, able-bodied adult population. If their income is above 100% of the federal poverty level, that's $14,000 a year, less than for an individual, less than... Uh, $20,000 a year. Actually, it's more than that. It's about $22,000 uh, relative to Medicaid, which is about $20,000. They can obtain coverage in the exchanges for zero-cost premium. That would be private commercial coverage. They would still have an, a possible out-of-pocket responsibility of $3,000 max on an annual basis. And I realize that a lot of people couldn't afford with that level of income $3,000. But there, but there are some ways that that could be uh, accommodated as well, working with uh, the hospitals in the state. I'm just shocked that nobody is talking about that. It's uh, really Because that requires actual skin in the game. That's not just a gimme, gimme freebie. Ah, well, it may be so. So here's a person on the ceasefire text line right off the bat here that says, stop 
griping about Medicare and Medicaid, give us a break. What is this person talking about? And this is uh, this is from the 256 area code. Where's 256? To look that up. Um, well, all I can say to this listener is, you know, if you don't like hearing about this issue, which the candidate for governor on the Democrat side talks about and does his party at every turn, in every mailer, in every ad, in every piece of communication, in every speech, well, then you're not paying attention to what's going on here in the state of Mississippi. And based on your, uh, your area code, you obviously don't live in the state of Mississippi, or your phone certainly is not registered uh, to an address in the state of Mississippi. Um, so, and uh, Medicare, I don't know what you're talking about. If you want to talk about Medicare, uh, yeah, we talk about that. It's, uh, it's going broke, and it will not be able to meet its obligations in 2028. It will not be able, even able to meet its Part A obligation. And I'm going to keep talking about that because the people of Washington will not talk about it and will not address it. And in a short three years, Medicare is not going to be able to pay its bills. And it, to me, is unthinkable that this does not get more attention than it should. That's not a Mississippi issue. That's not a state government issue. That is a federal issue, and it is an important one. It is why we have $33 trillion in debt, because nobody in, the, in Washington will touch those programs and uh, their, their economic situation, Social Security and Medicare. They're upside down. So, okay, somebody said that area code is Amory? No, it's uh, North Alabama. Okay, that makes sense. Jim from Pontotoc says it's Alabama. They ain't got a dog in the race. Can the governor expand Medicaid or does it have to go through legislator, the legislature? That's on the ceasefire tax line. Yeah, we've discussed that before. It uh, is not something the governor can do unilaterally because it requires appropriation of, of money. It, it, there's, uh, Medicaid is a a joint federal and state funded program. In the case of Medicaid expansion, it is different than base Medicaid in that the federal government covers 90% of the expenses. The state is responsible for 10%. That puts the state's responsibility in the $100 million a year range. But I got to tell you, that ain't squat compared to what taxpayers are about to have to, to uh, come up with to cover PERS obligations. We talked a little bit about that yesterday. We'll get into it uh, some more later on in the program. Uh, but when we come back, it's time for a break here. We've got uh, Charles White with Stiefel Investment. He's going to come on and discuss uh, that world. We're in the Element Well studio at the UM Banking Symposium at the Oxford Conference Center. Stay with us. We're coming right back. Gerard Gibbert. Welcome, welcome to our show on Super Talk Mississippi. Okay, now you have a good one.
Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We're live from the Oxford Conference Center for the University of Mississippi School of Business 22nd Annual Banking Symposium. We welcome to the program now Charles White, Managing Director, Fixed Income Capital Markets at Stiefel Financial Corp. Well, there hadn't been anything going on in the fixed income markets, has there, Charles? <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Quiet they have not been. Well, uh, you know, every day it just seems like that um, the investment community is fixated on interest rates. It's, right. it's almost as if we got away from really uh, analyzing fundamentals, mm -hmm. technicals, and making investment decisions on that basis. Not totally. We, we saw um, Amazon had a blockbuster report right. today, a couple of days ago. Microsoft blew it out. Mm -hmm. uh, Meta didn't do uh, quite as well as mm -hmm. expected. Um, so that's all over the map. And then we've got the, the banking stocks, energy stocks are, are also in focus. But a lot, a lot of interest in just watching interest rates. And every time Deadgum Jerome Powell speaks, you just watch that market, and it reacts to every single word. I mean, it's like right. they've got these wordsmiths that try to parse out every statement. So in your world, how are you managing all this? <laughs> <laughs> well, really, the, the, the good news about all of that is um, – I've been doing this for 40, a little over 40 years, and, and have seen a lot of cycles and seen a lot of different feds and a lot of different challenges. And um, really, none of this is kind of foreign or should be unexpected. Yeah, right. Because in, in, the, in, in the history of economics, no country has ever expanded their money supply by about 43 44% in 18 months. And, and it has a very lagged and very strong effect, right? And so it pushes up other prices, first things like real estate, then things like automobiles and so forth and so on. And finally, if enough of that money turns over in the economy, generates inflation. Yeah. And you knew that there had to be an adverse reaction to what they had done. And this time, in addition to the Fed, you had the U.S. government right on the – on the, on their so the fiscal side pumping money into the economy, right. which is still happening, so interest rates had to address that. They didn't do it initially. Longer term rates didn't, because they thought the Fed would break something by raising rates off zero. Surprise, surprise! The U.S. economy has been extremely resilient and still is, by the way, um, and uh, and as a result, longer term rates have got to adjust to that reality. You couple with that the fact that inflation is just not going down. Yeah. You know, two years ago, you and I talked about how it was going to be the real deal, and it, super, it exceeded our expectations, yeah. what we talked about. And But now it's kind of sticky. And, you know, you, you read the, the UAW and the airline pilots and all of their unions' uh, demands for wage increases. You know, a lot of people try to make them the bad guy. But they're really just trying to keep up yeah. with the rise in prices. So that's what makes inflation stickier now and harder to deal with. And that's why longer-term rates have got to go higher. Well, and something else that, that I keep reading about, you, you may have seen some of this as well, is all these automobile manufacturers are, are trying to respond to the federal edict of we're just going to transition to EVs and like now. We're going to do it right now. And they're all coming back and saying we can't make an affordable product. Right. We can't make a product that the consumer 
will will open up their wallets for mm-hmm. uh, because this is costing a whole lot more than we thought mm-hmm. to make these things. And in the meantime, you got the unions concerned about the auto manufacturers shifting production of those those vehicles to new plants, new facilities where they're not unionized. They're mm-hmm. they're in right to work states and so forth, making that more difficult. And this is all at play. And so we got fiscal policy that's that is contending with monetary policy. Mm-hmm. Um, but Jerome Powell won't say anything about to the feds and say, you guys got to stop spending all this money dropping it out of helicopters, as I like to say. He is not, which is kind of surprising, yeah. actually. Alan Greenspan used to do that he a did. lot. Um, since him, uh, you really hadn't seen that. But um, you still have, because of the two major acts that, that were passed by Congress and signed by the president, they're spending money, the Inflation Reduction Act, which <laughs> is not the right <laughs> anything name. Anything but. Uh, exactly. The Inflation Fueling Act. Uh, and then the uh, original infrastructure uh, bill, right. that that money is still has not peaked. Right. In the coming quarters, the amount of money that is being pumped out of there into the economy is going to increase. So um, even if, if you were to stop at this level, you still have a lot of excess government spending coming. Right. The mess with, with automobiles really goes back to the to the cafe rules of the 70s, right? The corporate average fuel economy rate. Yep. And, and it's now been pushed to such an extreme that the technology is not there to provide the EVs. It's the timetable. Exactly. It's the timetable. It's just force, force, force. We've got to run in and do this immediately. And the manufacturers are saying, we can't do this. We, we can't get this done in your, in your time frame uh, in a way that's economically viable for us. In the meantime, we've got the unions over here demanding higher mm-hmm. wages. It looks like they're about to cut a deal with Ford mm-hmm. in, in that respect. And Sounds like a pretty good deal. The unions got there. They did. They did. They're, they're going to. And they'll end up cutting one very similar with GM and I Stellantis. So. I think so. Um, and, uh, and, but at the end of the day, um, the numbers are eye-popping for you and I. It's, you know, the base uh, beginning salary at Ford is going to go up by 60%. Yeah, I saw that. Right? The, the current employees are going to get a benefit somewhere in the 25 to 30% range. But start to put that into the wage push inflation part. The car prices have to go up some, or GM and Ford and Stellantis' margins have to collapse. 68% starting wage increase, 33% top wage increase, 25% overall wage increase, 11% immediate increase, plus uh, enhanced benefits, cost of living adjustments restored, shorter progression, improved retirement, right to strike over plant closures. But there is one interesting feature, get your take on this, that I heard that Ford would have the right to sue the um, uh, the union if uh, they produced low quality vehicles it somehow resulted in cost to them to correct those issues i don't know that i've ever seen that in an employment contract before i i've never even heard of that or anything like it really and you know they're trying the, the davis bacon act is what yeah. really ties the company's hands with the unions in a lot of ways and that's a way to try to backdoor that, yeah. right, yeah. and to try to give them an out if they just become so uncompetitive like they did in the 1970s, right? I mean, that's what gave the opening to Toyota. And when you think about it, look at Hyundai and Kia and what they've done in the United States. They've taken advantage of that cost uh, advantage that they have. They have. And so it's just an attempt to try to backdoor it. My guess is that, you know, could probably never take place. It ended up in court and the five-year fight and probably whatever yeah but that gives you an idea how desperate the automakers are when they look at their cost structure and try to compete with others like toyota and etc 
let's get back to the the fixed income securities market. So, so the good news, though, Charles, is that I can make a little money on my fixed income. <laughs> I mean, it's better than one percent or or thereabouts. Uh, and so that's been a change, especially for those that are maybe looking at retirement on fixed income or, right. or, or a little risk averse. Exactly. Um, now, you're not going to produce long term the sort of returns you could uh, achieve in the equity markets, but you also don't have the downside risk associated. That's changed things somewhat. That's actually very beneficial, really, because yeah. when you think about it, you penalize savings. Right. And when you penalize savings, you create inequality, right? It's true. One of the best ways to. to level the financial playing field and reduce inequality would be a 6% savings account. No doubt. Because then you reward people to save, right? And if you incent behavior, you're going to get more of it. And so that's one really good thing that's coming out of this. And, you know, interest rates don't need to go to 14% for that. Right. At 6% or 5%, that's plenty of reward. You incent that saving and so, yes, for people who, who have cash, you're finally getting paid to hold it. And aren't we also um, increasing capital available for lending from these commercial banks as well? Well, you do. And, and that's the banking struggle. We probably uh, That's too big a subject to tackle yeah. today. Yeah. But the, the banks have to alter their cost structure so they can pay more and retain more of those deposits right. to lend in the communities. Right. And that's the major struggle in that room behind us we're talking about today. Yeah. Because it's yeah. everywhere, yeah. and banks are going to have to restructure their balance sheets to adapt to that. Yeah, but they will. I mean, uh, good managers and good people, which is by far the vast majority of people running banks, have the ability to do that. It's hard to do, but they'll get there. And I think in the end, everybody's better off. Yeah, I, I totally agree. So, um, but it, it certainly is volatile, to say the least. And and again, we're all kind of hanging around the water cooler, trying to guess what Powell and the and the governors are going to do next. You, you have any thoughts about that before we go? I do. I personally, I think, and here we go out on the limb. I think they're done. They're not going to raise rates anymore. Really? Okay. Yep. And here's why. Um, one is you're going to get political pressure, serious political pressure on them. Can't be public. Mm -hmm. Can't yep. be public. It's going to be under the table. And the second thing is, is they have a very good excuse now. The all the international uncertainty, Agree. Middle East, Ukraine, Agree. you name it, which is going to cinch trade and cause a lot more uncertainty. So there's their excuse not to. We've done a lot. We can wait, et cetera, et cetera. Then you get into the primary season, and I don't think they can raise rates. I think you're right. Charles, always good talking to you. Appreciate you coming on. Amen. Thank yeah. you. Thank We're you. Coming good right to see back, you again. Folks. Yeah, good to see you, Charles. We're coming right back, folks. We got Greg Cronin with Citizens Bank coming up next. This coverage is brought to you in part by the Citizens Bank, offering commercial and consumer checking accounts and CDs at competitive rates. Stay with us. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk, Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We're live at the University of Mississippi School of Business, a banking symposium, the 22nd annual that's being held at the Oxford Conference Center. This coverage is brought to you in part by the Citizens Bank, offering commercial and consumer checking accounts 
and CDs at competitive rates. We welcome to the program now Greg Cronin, South Mississippi Regional President of the Citizens Bank. Greg, good to see you, man. Great to be with you, Gerard. Thanks for having me. Looks like it's going to be uh, another great conference. Uh, Dr. Sire went through some of the topics that are being uh, discussed here today at the symposium. All the bankers gathered up trying to to learn uh, about stuff that's going on presently, stuff that's going to be coming their way in the future, and try to navigate what I think has arguably become a, a little bit more challenging environment. It has. I, you know, I, I've asked a lot of times, you know, kind of, how do you just define today? And uh, and I think it's uncertainty is probably the main word that you know that I use most of the time in terms of uh, you know one day you can read uh, about the good things that are happening, the economy's good, those type of things, and then the next day uh, the conversations about recession. And so I think it's just a a lot of uncertainty that's out there right now in terms of of um, maybe where we're heading economically. Uh, I think the Fed has a really tough job ahead of them, and I, you know, they're trying to create a soft landing, and I, I think that there's still uh, quite a few questions out there in terms of, you know, how they, what they do. Um, uh, you know, it appears that we may have a rate increase right. toward the end of the year in December, and um, and then I think a lot of folks think that this could go above, or rates could go above, or the Fed rate could go above six percent. Yeah. Uh, and I think if that happens, uh, you know, that'll continue to slow down the economy. But uh, I can tell you, I can share with you from the banking perspective, yeah. we still have a pretty robust pipeline. Okay, good. Loans, we're making loans, we're closing loans, uh, people are borrowing money. Okay. Uh, I, I represent more of the coast, and I, I share a lot of times that uh, uh, the interest rates are an issue, and, they're, and they're, they're part of the conversation, and they should be. Sure. Uh, but there's some other things that are out there too, such as insurance and things like that, no that are, that are, you know, out there in the, in the conversation. And so, uh, but I think next year is going to be a really challenging year. And again, I go back to that word. I think uncertainty is probably the word I use right now. Well, have you been shocked with uh, reports of the consumer? The consumer seems strong. We got positive consumer spending reports we got an incredible blockbuster gdp report i was shocked at that yeah and it's been good three the past three yeah. uh reporting periods yeah. past three quarters and and uh i think that's the uncertainty that's out there uh you know uh i don't go into the stock market very i try to yeah. much to stay but you know meta comes out earlier this week and then amazon had a yeah, blistering blockbuster, blockbuster day yesterday and so uh, you know, maybe maybe inconsistency is a word to use also in, in this conversation, but yeah. uh, but it's just uh, it's just challenging times. Uh, also, I think Mississippi represents this. I know that the South Mississippi does, but we also typically lag uh, right. economically. Right. Uh, we're we're slower to go into a slowdown. We're we're slower to come out of that slowdown at the same time. Uh, but um, you know, I, I, as I said, we have a robust pipeline. We're we're closing loans. We're closing consumer loans. Uh, I, it is slowing down, but it hasn't stopped. Okay. And um, well, that's good to hear. You know. Well, you know, my experience in business, and get your take on this as well. If this has been yours in Mississippi, is that when the economy is just super booming. We really aren't quite booming at the same level, but when the economy falls off, we don't really have that kind of uh, decline. We're we're fairly stable. Yeah, you know, we don't have those either. peaks and valleys, That's right. or as 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 much of a peak. Much and easier valley. to manage. Much easier. Yeah, yeah. Has that been your experience? 
It has for. I've been doing this a long time. Uh, I have to count probably to, <laughs> to yeah. get to that number real quick. But it's been that way through my banking career uh, in terms of being working in Mississippi. I worked in Alabama for just a little while, but uh, my experience has been in Mississippi. And, and again, you're right. The, the, the peaks are not quite as high. The valleys are not quite as low. Uh, we usually lag. Uh, but um, uh, but we're very resilient, and and um, and I think a lot of it also comes that I think within uh, within Mississippi and maybe a little bit about the southeast. Uh, this kind of goes into a whole other conversation, but uh, I think some of our conservative nature uh, helps also. I agree. I agree. And uh, before we go, I'd, I'd make this comment that. Our state doesn't really have a, a large concentration of any one industry, so we have a fairly diverse economy. If you think about that, the composition of it. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, some some areas of the country where they're totally relying on one industry. Maybe it's one factory or one set of of adjunct businesses serving that. We don't really have that in Mississippi, yeah. which is uh, I think a good thing. In yeah, respect. yeah, diversity is good. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Greg, good to see you. Thanks for coming on. Good to see be with the you. game on Saturday. I'll be there. All right. Howdy, look forward to it. Absolutely. <laughs> Folks, it's time for a break here on uh, Middays. We're at the UM School of Business Banking Symposium. We've relocated the Element Well Studio to the Oxford Conference Center. It's top of the hour. That means it's time for Fox News and Super Talk News. And when we return, it is Representative Clay DeWeese. Stay with us. We're coming right back. And now, and now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We're live from the Oxford Conference Center. We're here for the University of Mississippi School of Business Banking Symposium, the 22nd annual. All the bankers are assembled in the conference room enjoying presentations, trying to figure out uh, the moves they will make in their industry on this Friday, y'all. Uh, we welcome to the program Representative Clay DeWeese. He represents District 12, serves as the Vice Chair of the House Medicaid Committee. Uh, Representative DeWeese, good to see you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on, Gerard. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the event we were at last night, uh, the good old boys and gals, I think year 30, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you know, we, man, we certainly miss uh, our friend Johnny Morgan. What uh, an iconic Mississippian and American he was. But... You could feel his presence, I, I felt like, there last night. Absolutely. We, we uh, certainly miss Johnny. Um, I was one of the fortunate ones that got to see him more than most across the state living here and, and Johnny being here. Um, had business dealings with him throughout the years through the real estate business. Um, a great event. I thought um, Chip did a great job pulling that off and, and, and keeping it going. And uh, I thought there were all the speeches last night, everybody. Had, had very kind things to say about Johnny. I thought the event went very, very well. I hope, I hope that it continues on. I agree. Uh, of course, you're talking about his brother, Chip Morgan, serves on the IHL, also a great Mississippian, great American. Uh, they did a fantastic job, I thought. Um, particularly uh, poignant was uh, the Speaker of the House, Philip Guns, 
uh, announcement and presentation of the resolution the House and, and Senate adopted. It was, uh, he read from it. It was really framed nicely. We'll hang there at the, what's called the barn, of course. Uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, it's re very thoughtful on the part of the legislature. Right. He and uh, Lieutenant Governor got together and came up with that <clears throat> resolution. Um, he was able to present that to, Ch to Chip and, and the family for it to hang in the barn. I actually just drove past the barn on the way here to meet you today. Yeah. The signs are still up. Everything <laughs> looks great out there. So uh, it was a great event. It was yeah. a great event for sure. Any thoughts about uh, the election inside uh, two weeks here? Of course, the top of the ticket, the governor's race, is, is seems to have kind of sucked all the air out of the room um, with respect to uh, this general election coming up. Any any thoughts at this point? Sure. Um, yeah, I've got an election of my own, so that's where I, my focus, I know you do. focus I, has been. I didn't mean to, to uh, not recognize that as well. Oh, uh, sure. But, um, you know, I, I thought the governor did a great job last night with this speech. Um, has, has really done... Um, as he, he talks all the time, the momentum, the Mississippi's momentum, and uh, here in Oxford, you can feel it as well. The momentum we have going on here with the, the massive growth of our community, our county, the university's growth. Uh, we've set record enrollment classes each year for the past two or three years, and they're on track to set another one next year. So we have great momentum going on here as well. Yeah. No doubt about it. So Mr. Presley yesterday at Hobnob said that he would be uh, better at building relationships in the legislature than the governor has been and that the governor really doesn't have good working relationships. Has that been your experience? Um, the, the legislature is, uh, as you well know, is, is, is a relationship business. Yeah. And um, we have been fortunate enough to make good relationships in our short time being down there. And, and one of those has been with the governor. I have a great relationship with the governor. Uh, yeah. I got to speak to him a little a little bit last night. Um, so I haven't experienced that, and uh, I do appreciate the relationship that I have with yeah. him. awesome. All right, so we got uh, a new session coming up. That's, That's first right. of all, we got to go to the polls. How's we got an election looking? first. Right, let's talk about your race. How's yeah, it going? Um, it's going well. We've been out uh, seeing the people in the district. Um, we're excited about it. Uh, we feel like the past four years we've we've been very productive uh, for our community. Um, secured some funding for some much needed road work around here and uh, we hope to do that again uh, just continue the momentum as I said earlier it's, it's relationship based and uh, we've been very fortunate to build those relationships and we want, we want to continue on my race um, we're running hard and uh, we've been out knocking on doors seeing the people of the district and we hope it's well but we, we need people to get out and vote and, and we'll find out in just 11 days now, Yeah, I guess. 11 days, inside two weeks, absolutely. So you guys are going to be back there at the Dome. Uh, I'm optimistic you're going to be reelected and representing your district, District uh, 12. Well, I appreciate your confidence. Yeah, well, we'll be back down there, and, uh, you know, it'll kick into gear. We're going to have... A, a new Speaker of the House, of course. Right. Um, and things will be a little bit different. Uh, committees will be assigned. We, we are likely to have a return of Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman. And um, so we kind of already have some experience there. Of course, uh, Jason White, uh, who's likely to be the Speaker of the House, is, is no newbie to leadership as well, serving as Speaker Pro Tem. But uh, what, what's the priorities? What are you guys going to work on this year? Well, again, first, um, my focus is getting back down there, and as you mentioned, we'll uh, we will have a uh, change of leadership. Um, 
we'll see who, who how that, that all plays out. Uh, you know, the focus for me is continue on with what we're doing for our community, go down there and represent the district that sent me down there to represent them, which includes the university. And uh, that'll, you know, that'll be my focus is, okay. is what we can continue doing okay. for Oxford and the university. You uh, believe that you um – should you prevail, which again I'm confident you will, you think you likely to be tapped once again to serve uh, in leadership on the in the Medicaid committee? We'll see. Um, I, I'm willing to help and serve wherever they see a need and they see a good fit for me. I'm happy to to do that. Um, if it be Medicaid or, or whatever it may be, I'm happy to serve wherever is needed. Yeah. So I, I have kind of committed to the audience that everyone that comes on the show in state government, I'll I'll pose the question to them of of a purse sure which is um it's got a set of challenges that uh, i believe have to be addressed you you know everybody in the capital knows that realizes that uh it's a, it's a touchy subject to deal with especially in an election year so it didn't get a great deal of attention but i got a feeling that it'll be front and center when we get back down there sure something certainly something that has to be addressed um this community uh, is a retirement community and yeah. uh uh, a lot of a lot of state jobs here, so something that we certainly have to watch. I, I don't know the answer. I uh, look forward to, to working with others and, and coming coming up with a solution. But um, yeah, something that's certainly going to be going to be addressed when we get back. The state um, still continues to produce revenues that exceed sine die estimates, which is is good news. So it looks like we're in pretty good financial condition. I just got uh, sales tax diversions for my county, Madison County. I, I serve on uh, the Economic Development Board down there, and so I'm uh, uh, privileged to get that information pretty quick after it comes in. And and we're we're way above last year. Yeah, and uh, I actually got a, a report. I was in City Hall here last week, and we're, we're seeing a okay. uh, great return on our, our sales tax revenue as well. Uh, the state is in great financial shape, as you well know. We've talked about that plenty of times before. Um, we we got to keep that going, keep working. I know we've worked on the income tax. Um, I look forward to, to more of those conversations. I know that's something you're passionate about as well. Yeah. Um, so I know that we'll, we'll continue to look at that and conti continue to chisel away as we can. We were just talking about it off the air before we came on the, the ballot initiative process we haven't been able to pull that across the finish line can't seem to get a consensus between uh, the the chambers uh, you feel like that's going to get addressed again I, I'm sure there will there will be attention paid to that as well um, we just have to have a as we said earlier a meeting of the minds on the on the best solution uh, to get that back in place where do you stand, Clay, on uh, school choice and education savings accounts? What you have any thoughts about that? I am very fortunate to live in a district with two A-rated schools. Uh, we, public education is something we pride ourselves on here in, here in Oxford. Um, it, it has been a pleasure to represent these two school districts. I've, I was uh, telling someone earlier, uh, before the event last night, I had the opportunity to go to my daughter's school. Um, and it was a, an event late in the afternoon where, where the teachers had the parents in, and I was just amazed at the parental support that was in the school uh, here in Oxford. And it, and it was great to see, and I appreciate the school district doing that and, and providing the parents the opportunity to get in there, and the participation was, was fantastic. It's critical when you have Absolutely. parental uh, involvement. Absolutely. And educators have been telling us that for decades. That that's the difference often between real high-quality education and one that doesn't really uh, mark up. The, I mean, teachers are limited. They can just do so much. Uh, it's got to start the house. Sure. And when you have a community that 
uh, is replete with really uh, good traditional families. Usually uh, you can find that the schools are performing real well as, as much. Right. Well, I can't speak for anywhere else, but uh, in this community there's there's great parental involvement, and uh, it was it was certainly on display last night. I was, I was very pleased to see the turnout last night. Yeah. You know, something that uh, I've been also very passionate about, Clay, is our certificate of need loss that uh, we're, we're still have those on the books and have been pushing to repeal those. I'm, I'm a proponent of uh, a free market to the extent we can. Before we go, you got any thoughts one way or another about that? Well, again, health care is something that we'll, we'll continue to look at when big we get issue. back. Absolutely. It'll be a big issue. Absolutely. Always good seeing you, Clay. Appreciate you coming Thanks for on. having me on. Thank you. Folks, we've been talking to Clay DeWeese, uh, member of the Mississippi House of Representatives, represents District 12. He's running for re-election. Get out there and vote for him. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. This coverage brought to you in part by the Citizens Bank, offering commercial and consumer checking accounts and CDs at competitive rates. That's something you hadn't heard in a long time, CDs at competitive rates. That just means that instead of uh, receiving 1%, 2% or so for so long, uh, now we've got fixed income investments such as CDs and money markets, uh, treasuries and so forth that actually pay uh, something that makes you a little money, so that's uh, it's good news on that on that uh, regard. Uh, also today on In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, you'll hear another interview with music historian Wesley Smith, who talks about the birth of rock and roll in Mississippi, Johnny Cash, and more. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar is presented by Superior Catfish. Remember, there's catfish, then there is Superior Catfish. It's U.S. farm-raised catfish with homegrown flavor. Ask for it by name at your favorite store or restaurant and go to superiorcatfish.com for more info. So, uh, you may have seen that there is a new candidate uh, for president on the Democrat side, and that would be Minnesota Rep. Dean Phillips announced yesterday he's running for president. He's kicking off a long-shot Democrat primary a challenge to President Joe Biden. Quote, I think President Biden has done a spectacular job for our country, but it's not about the past. This is an election about the future. I will not sit still. I will not be quiet in the face of numbers that are so clearly saying that we're going to be facing an emergency next November. That's what Representative Dean Phillips posted online. That's interesting. Uh, he, <laughs> He has got a slogan I heard Rhino that says, Make 
America affordable again. <laughs> You've seen this? I thought that was actually pretty clever. Um, <laughs> make America affordable again. You may have also seen that the president's poll numbers have absolutely plummeted. His approval rating overall has slipped to 37%. I believe that's down, if I'm not mistaken, 11 points from last month. And uh, this is in a Gallup poll. It is thought, this is mind-boggling to me, folks, it is thought that's because Joe Biden has taken a pro-Israel stance, that there are a lot of Democrats who are pro-Hamas and anti-Israel. That is just mind-boggling to me. What, what is up with these people? How do they not see that Hamas is a terrorist organization whose goal, whose mission is to inflict evil acts? of barbarism on innocent civilians. That's how they roll. That is their goal. They want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. There's no question. It's stated in their doctrine. They teach their children about this nonsense. And so that is hurting Joe Biden in the polls because Democrats are more Pro, or, or many of them, I should say, are pro-Palestine. Please explain to me why Jewish American voters continue to overwhelmingly support Democrats. I certainly hope they're getting a wake-up call here to see that they are not liked, honestly. They are, they are not held in any sort of high regard by many in their party. And so this is the problem, I think, with the Democrat Party when they absolutely try to appease every faction. And this, and this is biting them in the butt now. I, and I hope they pay for it. I really do. Because they're on the wrong side of this. I don't think there's any question about that. And I'm just I'm blown away and at, at the protest across college campuses in this country. And those seem to be ratcheting up anymore. I saw a report about... Um, Riley Gaines, you know who she is, the female rights advocate, that she was speaking around Harvard, scheduled the event for mid-September, and then out of nowhere, essentially, Harvard reached out, contacted, and canceled the event. Said they had too many other events pop up. Didn't have anything to do with that. So finally, she got the thing rescheduled for um, yesterday, 26th. That's just because Gaines' operation manager looked at the Harvard events calendar and said, look, you got a date. You can't tell us you don't have a date open. And so they got it in there. This was uh, hosted, by the way, by an organization on the campus known as Network of Enlightened Women. They hosted the event. However, members of this organization feared speaking out about the event on the record that Harvard might retaliate against them. Where's the tolerance of the left in this country? They're the most intolerant ilk, arguably, in the world, the American liberal. So they delivered, of course, so her message was very pro-woman. Now, students they encountered on campus were involved in a fundraising effort at Harvard, fundraising effort, 
for Palestinians. And so when they asked organizers off the camera why they, they why don't they also try to help Israeli civilians, this organization responded, Hamas actually treats the Israeli hostages very well. You should look it up. It's on CNN. Oh, that that means it's the absolute empirical truth. It's on CNN. It's just incredible. Did they hear themselves? Treating the hostages. They've taken them from their home against their will and are holding them hostage. We're talking about civilians here. We're not talking about uh, members of the Israeli military there that are being held. You're so right. We're talking about women and children and the elderly, innocent civilians. It's just uh, not, not prisoners of war that are fighting against them and trying to kill them. No, we're talking about innocent civilians. It's incredible that they believe that a biological male participating in NCAA championships is considered, those who oppose that, those who oppose biological males participating in female sports at any level, honestly, that's considered more hateful, more hateful than students who express uh, Sentiments against murderous terrorists. Think about that. So they're, they're more concerned about Jews, who they think is Israel, are murderous terrorists. And, and, who, um, and these people justify perpetrating the murders of 1,400 Israelis. It took more than 200 now, it's being reported, as hostages. They actually believe that disallowing prohibiting a male from participating in female sports is a more hateful act than beheading babies. Just think about that for a second, how upside down that crap is. So ultimately, she held her event. And this is a private in, uh, university, so they're not bound by the First Amendment. I recognize that. And, of course, Harvard's president recently, recently said she wouldn't punish student Hamas sympathizers because the school is devoted to the ideals of free speech, though they did everything they could to prevent Riley Gaines from speaking on their campus. I call that hip hypocrisy. And they also denied any media access to the event. Nothing, of course, exhibits the university's commitment to free speech speech quite like barring the press from attending. Just unbelievable. There were no posters, of course, on campus up about the Gaines event anywhere on campus. But I'm looking at Rhino at a at a um, like a poster board in the middle of campus that's got uh, it features posters showing all the various events that are coming up, uh, such as cultural injustice. Extractive capitalism in the Middle East. That's just unbelievable. Let's <laughs> uh, the, see, there's something else I saw here. Um, moving forward, Thailand, Asian, and beyond. White House princess. What is all this stuff? The problem of justice. <laughs> it's so upside down. The, uh, the Gaines posters, by the way,
They were up. They were put out uh, by her operators, but they magically disappeared. Imagine that. However, there are posters that display the words, Recognize the Genocide in Palestine. <laughs> Unbelievable. So twisted. So upside down. Folks, we're at the uh, Oxford Conference Center for the University of Mississippi School of Business of Banking Symposium. This coverage brought to you in part by the Citizens Bank, offering commercial and consumer checking accounts and CDs at competitive rates. We're stepping aside and coming right back. Everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. The iconic vocals of the late Brad Delp of Boston. Tom Schultz on the electric guitar. Awesome tunes there, bumping us into this segment. We're in the Element Well studio at the University of Mississippi School of Business Banking Symposium at the Oxford Conference Center. So <laughs> I read a report um, in the Harvard Crimson about uh, Riley Gaines' presentation yesterday. And, and as we said, she was able to get on the calendar finally and speak. Some hundred attended the event, 100 in attendance. That's, uh, I would say, is more than you would think. But outside, students were demonstrating against the event. They held what they described as a, quote, big trans party. At the entrance to the hall where Riley was speaking, Groups included Trans Harvard, the Queer Students Association, and the Harvard Law School's Women's Law Association. They gathered an hour before the event to create posters and listen to speeches by organizers who criticized Gaines. <laughs> Incredible. As the talk began, uh, Gaines's talk, demonstrators outside, they started some speeches, which included Shiler M. Bylar, who graduated from Harvard in 2019, was a former Harvard swimmer. I didn't know this. The first openly transgender man to compete. Wait, they admit it's a man? In NCAA athletics, gave a speech praising the growth of trans advocacy at Harvard since, the, since his time as an undergraduate. Quote, people like her happening because we're making progress, right? Because we're more visible than we ever were before. Because we actually are striving for more than what the box is that they put us in. The box is that we put us in. Huh? You're either born male or female. I noted to many, that's hate speech. Thus, you should compete. On the team that corresponds with your biological gender. It's just incredible how that is deemed a more hateful act than the acts committed by Hamas terrorists. I'm blown away by that. 
Uh, on the ceasefire text line, we've been talking about uh, PERS this morning and other uh, issues of importance in the state of Mississippi. Ben from Madison says, I appreciate you asking about PERS, the ballot initiative and school choice. I don't want to get my hopes up about the ballot initiative, but if something isn't done in the 24th session, we won't have statewide elections until 26. Uh, and the point Ben's making there is that yeah, the change would uh, be have to be made to the Constitution, and by um, our, our our state law, that measure, that amendment, would have to go to the ballot in a statewide election to be ratified by the people to take effect. So that's right, Ben. It would be delayed even if we got something out of the legislature to place such an amendment on on the ballot. Also on the ceasefire text line. Why does it seem that every, before every new legislative session, people think something needs to be done to fix PERS? Here's a novel idea in all caps, meaning for emphasis, fund it. The state of Mississippi has a legal contract with its retirees. That promise must be kept. If anything is to be done at all, it must be for new hires only. Well, uh, first, it has to be fixed because it is in red signal status in all three of the major financial metrics used to evaluate and assess the health of a defined benefit plan. Mississippi's is, uh, I think, 46th worst in the nation in terms of its solvency. So it's got it's got to be addressed. With respect to new retirees or, or new members coming into the program, that is one of the proposals from um, the PERS board is to create a new tier. We call it a tier, and that tier would have a whole new set of, uh, of features associated with it from a contribution perspective, a vesting perspective, a calculation of retirement benefits, cost of living adjustment, uh, number of years to to qualify for benefits to vest etc refund provisions if you leave the system so all of that all of those features and aspects are possible to include in a new tier I do understand Rhino you and I talked about this a bit yesterday a fifth tier is is being proposed uh, by the executive director and the board of peers uh, pardon me the board of PERS or the board of PERS to create a new tier. Uh, but that's just part of the the necessary changes to uh, to really shore up PERS's finances. That alone won't fix it. And so the board has also asked the state of Mississippi, the taxpayers, to provide um, a one-time uh, transfer of $350 million, like immediately. Now, that doesn't mean PERS is at risk of not being able to meet its obligations, its benefit payment obligations on, on any short-term basis. It just means that on the long term, to ensure future stability, it needs money. So already we know that the board has proposed a, a 5%, 5 percentage points increase um, in the employer contribution rate, and anytime we, we say the word employer in the context of PERS uh, from a contribution perspective, that's taxpayer. Taxpayers pay for PERS. And uh, from the employer perspective, there's an employer contribution, an employee contribution. It works similar to the way Social Security does, except the employer contribution to PERS is presently 17.4% versus 9% for the employee. It is going to rise 
now in accordance with what the board has recommended that the legislature must approve by 2% a year until it reaches the actuary recommended rate of an additional 10%. That's going to cost taxpayers $700 million a year. And that assumes that payroll stays level, which it probably won't. It will probably increase. Teacher Over a 10-year period, teacher pay, uh, pay in the school districts, pay at the county and municipal level. All of those entities participate in PERS, but at a minimum. So if you take that $700 million a year plus $350 million one-time infusion and guarantee you they're going to come back in a few years and say we need more. This is all being borne by the taxpayers. So that's I'm just I'm just trying to explain what we mean by funded. I'm not suggesting that the state isn't obligated to uh, hold up its end of the um, uh, the benefits that it agreed to pay. I'm just telling you what it's going to cost. 700 million a year just from the employer contribution perspective. And then of course 350 million they seek in a one-time infusion right now and i i suspect they're going to ask for more um any increase in the employee benefit requires an enhancement in benefit employee contribution rate pardon me and it requires an enhancement in benefits if you're going to increase contributions you commensurately almost uh, all uh, also must increase the benefits contributions go up Benefits go up on the employee side, not on the employer side. But that's just the math. That's where PERS is. Much of this stems from increasing benefits back in the 90s, the late 90s, without funding them. Does that sound familiar? That's what we do at the federal level. We just increase spending and we don't fund. The difference is the Fed can print money and the state can't. And the way they did that was by its kind of its, its math and accounting um, sort of complica uh, complications, but the way they did that was by extending the amortization of prior shortfalls on the investment portfolio. It's kind of crazy, but that's essentially what they did. It, it really doesn't fund. It just makes the accounting work uh, is all it really does. It really doesn't provide any additional monetary funding into the program. But that's where we are with that, and, and I'm going to continue to ask those who come on the show from a lawmaker perspective, what are your plans? What are you going to do about it? They know. They've been meeting uh, as recent as, what, a week or so ago, I think, the, the um, executive director, Higgins, presented to the state senate uh, about actions that the board has taken, the board of PERS has taken, such as creating this new, um, this new tier for new employees. And then the question is, is that going to make it problematic to recruit new employees into the state government if they're going to contribute more and benefits go down? Because that's one of the attractions, one of the recruiting tools in the state government has always been the defined benefit plan that you don't find anymore in the private sector. Thomas Tupelo says, is the SLRP in financial crisis too? It's really not. Thomas is so small. This is the supplemental uh, program for state legislatures state legislators it's it's not the same boat as purse as broad purse it's just very small most says i believe many in the legislature do not want a ballot initiative and i am fine with that we elect them to do a job if we don't like the job they are doing we can support another contender for the position 
A lot of folks do hold that view as well, Mose. I know that, uh, especially in the state Senate, I think it's Senator John Polk, that made public statements along those lines. He doesn't really support a ballot initiative. I say again, if we get a ballot initiative, you could pretty much count on Medicaid expansion passing, recreational marijuana. I'd say that's 50-50 would go through as as well. And you probably have expansion of abortion rights. I think those two things or those three things are likely to get passed if we got a ballot initiative. All right, we're taking a break right here. Coming back with Stacey Brantley, CEO, President of the Citizens Bank. Days with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We're live once again from the University of Mississippi School of Business Banking Symposium. It's at the Oxford Conference Center. We're pleased to be here and also pleased to welcome Stacy Brantley, CEO, President of the Citizens Bank. Stacy, good to see you. Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me on. This is a, uh, a really a great event, the 22nd annual, where the folks in your industry assemble, and I think the B-School does a great job of, of lining up uh, speakers and focusing on topics that are of uh, interest to the commercial banking and the financial industry overall. What do you think? Uh, for a lifetime community banker to come here and see the, the university support for banking, uh, it's it's a neat thing to see see that investment in in this in this sector. Yeah, it's it's awesome. Any 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 topics of particular interest to you as you try to navigate these rather. Um just kind of try. I don't want to say trying times because I know you're doing great. Let's just say uncertain, as Greg Cronin just said when he was on the program. I think that's a fair way to assess the the current state. No, no doubt these are uncertain times. There's all kind of things going on in our country, both in the financial sector and the country as a whole. And you know, this is where I think community banking is is such a positive uh, out there in the world. You know, in our communities and. You know, Citizens Bank. We're we're located throughout the state. You know, in some of the larger communities, or most of the larger communities in the state, but also in a number of small towns. And uh, where I think it fits today is that we are, you know, we are committed to the communities we serve. And in these uncertain times, I think that's really important. You know, I look back over the the times of my life where you know I was making lifetime decisions, whether it was buying a house, buying cars for my children, sure. uh, making business investments, whatever the case may be, it's, it's the community banking and those partners in my life, they have they have been great great for me and it gives me a lot of peace to know that I've got to pick up the phone and get somebody to help me get something done. You know, technology has certainly um, been inserted throughout all aspects of the financial industry. It's benefited greatly from it uh, in terms of uh, productivity, customer experience, uh, et cetera, and just management tools. There's no substitute, though, for the, the face-to-face type banking relationship, is there? Uh, absolutely not. You know, there's a lot of 
uh, I guess, speculation as to what changes in technology mean for the industry. And, and I think that it's, it's just a growing partnership between community banking and, uh, and technology. But I, I just I can't envision a day where that touch, that, that ability to pick up the phone and call someone that you know and that you trust uh, to help you through diff- uh, important decisions in your life or in sometimes difficult times, I don't think you can replace that with technology. Well, I agree. I agree. And, and, and bankers, uh, they're, they're more than just people that help process your loans when, when a small business, for example, which is a, a lot of your customers in, in the communities across the state, when, when they're establishing that relationship and, and coming to you guys for, uh, for capital, your bankers are also giving advice to them, and they rely on that advice uh, across a, just a spectrum of issues in operating their businesses, more than just a, a place they get money. Yeah, we hope we're good partners. That's ultimately what we strive to be, uh, a lot of listening trying to understand what the client in front of us needs, whether it's a you know a household, someone looking to do something with their family, or whether it's a business. Uh, the first thing we need to do is sit down and listen and understand what the issues are and, and how we can help and be that trusted partner yeah. when, when, when that decision is, is in front of a, uh, of a customer. Yeah. Are, are you hearing anything, um, uh, Stacy, from the Fed about changing reserve requirements? I, I know that's something you guys got to pay attention to a lot. Anything there? Uh, you know, we, 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 we keep a close ear to the ground there, and, and I do think there's there's change out there in the future. Uh, I, I won't speculate there, yeah. though. Um, yeah. You know, we're just, we're just hoping to, you know, keep blocking and tackling, like you said, during these uncertain times that Greg talked about earlier. Yeah. But, but uh, your posture has always been a conservative one in operating the bank from that perspective. We're a community bank. We're 115 years old. Uh, been been through wars and recessions, and, and, and still here serving our communities. And you know, we're just going to try to make good decisions with 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 good clients, and uh, just and serve our communities. Any expansion plans, or any, or just anything about the future with respect to the bank, you can tell us about. Oh, we're always open to expansion, but we're we're really just focused on serving the communities that that we're in, in the state of Mississippi and beyond, um, and. and you know, I kind of believe that if, if if you if you focus on doing it well, growth kind of comes. Yeah. So uh, that's 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 probably our our growth policy is you know take great care of the people you're in front of, give great service, and, and growth just kind of happens. I've been fortunate to meet uh, lots of uh, members of your team, especially at the at the executive at the management level. Of course, Greg Crone and I have known each other while uh, George Gammon's coming on later on. What's your secret there? You got great people. Well, that that is our secret. It's 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 great bankers who you know whether they're on the teller line or in our executive team that are just focused on taking care of people. Uh, we have good people on our team. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, that's why you guys are successful. Stacy, appreciate you coming on. Hey, great to be here. Thanks yeah, for having thanks me. Thanks a lot, Stacy Brantley, CEO and president of the Citizens Bank. Folks, it's time for a break. It's top of the hour. In fact, that means Fox News, Super Talk News. We're coming back with another hour of middays for the from the uh, University of Mississippi School of Business Banking Symposium at the Oxford Conference Center. to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. 
here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's middays. We're live from the Oxford Conference Center for the Ole Miss School of Business Annual Banking Symposium. The Element Well Studio relocated to the spacious lobby here at the Conference Center. The bankers are all in the, uh, the big conference room enjoying presentations from subject matter experts talking about the industry. It's a really neat facility to have a program like this and these are community bankers of course and they're all gathered up to hear uh, all the info they can to help guide them as they go back home and run their businesses the banking business and Mississippi is blessed in that we don't really have uh, a huge concentration of any one particular industry and that uh, that means that we're not subject to lots of the lumpiness uh, from an economic perspective and that makes it a little easier for bankers to navigate uh, the challenges in the industry and in the economy and a lot of uncertainty as you've heard the bankers talk about today and something we've certainly expressed as well on the program on the ceasefire text line there's a reason those benefit packages aren't found in the public sector it's bad business i think they mean the private sector, right? Talking about defined benefit programs. And lots of companies did have defined benefit programs. Back in the 70s, 80s, they were very popular. And, and yeah, they're, they're expensive and, and uh, difficult to, to predict, difficult to maintain from a funding perspective. And so it is absolutely true that most private sector organizations phased those out. But when they did that, and the way they did that is they just wrote a check uh, to a fund to take care of future benefit obligations, billions upon billions to do so. And they took a big hit on their financial statements from a net income perspective because it was a big one-time charge. Um, and they also went into debt, some did, while they transitioned uh, many in their ranks of uh, existing employees to define contribution plans, such as a 401k, which is very commonly found in the private sector. Uh, but the state government doesn't quite have that sort of luxury, uh, as you can imagine. That would mean the taxpayers, and that's one of the things, as we talked about, that the Board of PERS has asked for is, hey, give us $350 million to, uh, to help shore up PERS's uh, financial uh, situation, but that in itself is not enough. That's why they're also increasing the contribution rate on the, at least that's been proposed, the legislature will have to approve that in the next session. That is scheduled to go into effect, as we shared, July 1, 2024, 2% per year until the target rate of an additional 10. That is what the actuaries have predicted and advised PERS they need, an additional 10%. 10% employer contribution. That would increase it uh, once it terminates at 27.4%. So think about that. The combination of the employer and the employee share would be at 36.4%. 36.4% of every dollar of payroll 
would be deposited into the PERS fund from the combined employer and employee. That is what the actuaries say is necessary to ensure long-term stability of the program. Well, when you lap onto that, the cost of health insurance, somebody sent us an email or should say a text earlier on that, how that is rising rather precipitously in the public sector in Mississippi, health, ins health insurance premiums. It is a self-insured program in uh, Mississippi. So you got um, an issue there uh, as well that uh, taxpayers are going to have to fork over more money to pay the, the increased cost of health insurance. And one of the challenges here is that I know a lot of state employees would like to see their base pay, their compensation, their salaries increase. But when the state is having to also cover the cost of additional PERS contributions, uh, plus the cost of uh, higher insurance premiums, that sort of gets in the way of any kind of increases to, to salary, to base pay. You're talking about uh, a situation where the combined uh, PERS contribution at 27.4% once it it terminates, uh, that would be some five years from now, 27.4 plus the cost of health insurance plus the employer's share of Social Security and Medicare, which state employees participate in, and uh, that that comes in um, at, I think, 7.65%, if I'm not mistaken, combined. So you add all that up, you're looking at over 40%, over 40 cents of every dollar of payroll uh, also being absorbed by the taxpayers in the form of what's called employee burden. So 40 cents of every dollar of payroll is going to these other programs, Social Security, Medicare, PERS, health insurance. Incredible when you think about it. So every dollar we pay, add on another 40, 41 cents to it just to cover um, those additional employee uh, benefits and expenses, Social Security, Medicare, PERS, health insurance. Wow. Um, so it, it just keeps on growing. It keeps on getting more expensive. Looking for what somebody said earlier on the program, of Rhino, about uh, the cost of, of health insurance rising for the public sector employees. Hello, the state employees' rates are due, this is Mike in Gulfport, due to explode on the new year. Is anyone working on a fix? Mike, what kind of fix would you want? Uh, the state picks up 100% of the employee share of coverage. It does not pay for family coverage or spousal coverage. Um, and, of course, those are rising as well, so that means the employee would have to bear additional cost if uh, they are enrolled in one of those categories of coverage other than just the individual cost. So uh, the, the situation would be that, again, you could increase outlays from the general fund. The taxpayers would have to bear that cost. Um, to reimburse employees, you'd have to completely change the program some way so that employees would get reimbursed for employee spouse or employee plus um, family coverage as well, which presently it doesn't cover. It only covers the employee share, but it's 100% of the employee share. Under the current salary schedule, a teacher retiring with 30 years of experience would begin receiving an annual benefit of $34,680. Fast forward 30 years into retirement with a 3% cost of living adjustment, their annual benefit is $81,000. That's why the state will struggle to get quality employees. And that's the other 
part of this. That's on the ceasefire tax line, by the way. And that's that's the other uh, factor in making this uh, decision. And and that would that's just a problem um, for uh, recruiting employees, for making economic ends meet, etc. So uh, on the on the ceasefire tax line, Vicky in Clarksdale says we pay our state health insurance every month. Right, Vicky, but you're you're paying not for the individual portion, right? I mean, in all the documents I found that that uh, describe the state health insurance program, the employee coverage, the base employee coverage is 100% covered by the state of Mississippi, by the taxpayers, uh, by the employer. It's only when that coverage extends to either a spouse, if that if they are included on the plan, um, or spouse and family, or employee and family without a spouse, a single parent, for example. I know it's an unpopular opinion, but is there a way to cut numerous employees? Well, cutting employees actually puts additional pressure on PERS. That's one of the conundrums. You, wanna, um, you, wanna, you want to uh, cut the roles uh, of public sector employees, I mean, because most of our general fund, it goes to pay uh, staff, employees. Um, that uh, it certainly, from an education perspective, it, most of those expenses that are borne through the general fund, funded by the general fund, are employee expenses. It's 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 teachers, administrators, school employees, etc. Then you got Medicaid. Um, not a lot of that, of course, is employees. Most of that is is uh, is paying for medical treatment services, providers, reimbursement, and then you've got um, then you got the other. Uh, part of, of the general fund corrections is next in line, but that but again those really pale in comparison when you think about um, Medicaid and and um, education combined. Uh, those two, I believe, those two programs uh, consume near 70 percent of total general fund spending. So, Vicki, if you're paying for some sort of insurance out-of-pocket just for you, you must have some options that, that exceed the base coverage that is paid for by your employer. That's certainly possible. And works for Medicaid. That's right. Yeah, I understand. Uh, when, uh, but I've actually looked at, at uh, pay stuffs from other employees. If they just got the base health coverage that the state offers, no cost to them. state picks up 100% of that. Uh, we're coming right back with more in the Element Well studio. We're at the Ole Miss School of Business Banking Symposium at the Oxford Conference Center. Coverage brought to you partially by the Citizens Bank. Stay with us. Interrupt this program. Gerard Gibbert. Here we go. This is huge. Huge. Huge news. Huge. Huge. Huge news. Huge. You need to listen to this. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. 
We are in hour three, the afternoon portion of the program. We're live uh, from the Oxford Conference Center for the University of Mississippi School of Business Banking Symposium. And, of course, uh, the program partially sponsored today by the Citizens Bank. We certainly appreciate uh, their sponsorship. Offering commercial and consumer checking accounts and CDs at competitive rates. You know, there's so many products that uh, banks offer uh, these days. It's really good to see how the financial sector has expanded and just uh, given financial institutions so many more products to offer their customers. And typically, I think we think uh, we usually just think about loans and checking accounts, treasury services, and um, and debt sort of services. But gosh, there's a whole lot more that they offer as well. Accounts receivable, working capital, inventory financing, business acquisition loans, loans for the agricultural community, commercial building loans, uh, machinery and equipment loans, just a lot. Working capital is, is something that almost all small businesses have to rely on that is if they sell to their customers on credit if they extend credit uh, to customers when they buy their goods and services and they have to carry that accounts receivable often that uh, presents uh, can uh, some cash flow challenges uh, for the businesses and therefore they rely on local good community banks to provide working capital financing for them to kind of help even out the lumpiness of of uh, selling and collections and honestly when businesses are growing uh, that is also a situation where they need more capital to finance the inventory they need uh, to sell if they're in that business and then the accounts receivable as well when their business is growing usually you're trying to wait for the profit and the cash flow generated from that to catch up doesn't mean anything till you collect on that accounts receivable uh, Let's see, back to the C Spire text line, if I can find it here. I got it. Um, for years, let's see. State employees, let me get to this one first. Paula on the C Spire text line. State employees do pay some of their individual insurance. We didn't when we started in 1979, but we were before we were retired. So I did some research on that. I actually texted uh, someone at the Department of Finance and Administration just to confirm that what I'm passing on is accurate. The state does, in fact, just as I said, pay 100% of an active employee premium, health insurance premium, if they're enrolled in either base coverage or choice coverage. If they're enrolled in select coverage, the employee has to pay a portion of that. And that's what I was saying earlier. I know Vicki was nice enough to send us a text on that. Vicki in Clarksdale works for Medicaid, says we pay some of our health insurance every month. They take it out of my check every month just for me. Um, I said the state pays 100% of the employee coverage, but I, I failed to add the, the nuance to that, that that's just those are three categories of coverage. That's pretty typical even in the private sector. When you, when you select your health insurance coverage, usually you're presented with choices, and, and the choices typically have to do with the, um, the out-of-pocket cost that you'll bear, uh, deductibles, co-pays, um, co-insurance. And that will determine the premium that you may have to pay, the employer may pay if you select a certain level of coverage, but you may have to pay some on that if you select uh, a, a more enhanced level of coverage. The same is true for public sector employees in the state of Mississippi. So I just wanted to clarify that. 
For years, state leaders, this is on the ceasefire text line, have bragged about cutting the size of government, i.e. removing pens, jobs, etc. That has been a major factor into the current BRRRS PERS budget problem. Well, and it, you're absolutely right in that it, it is a, a bit of a challenge and almost, um, almost contradictory in that, yeah, we want to cut the size of government. That pretty much starts with cutting headcount, cutting payroll. That's absolutely true. That uh, applies in the state government, typically applies even in the private sector. But every, every employee that is, uh, that is shed from the roles of public sector, because PERS is a pay-as-you-go defined benefit program, every, every less employee that uh, the program has paying contributions into it, both the, the, the uh, employer and employee portion, that just puts additional pressure on PERS finances to fund benefits going out. So that's absolutely true. We could talk about cutting the size of government presently and uh, in, in, in an effort to reduce, of course, expenses, uh, taxpayer-funded expenses. But when you're doing that, you're also putting pressure on PERS on the other side because they got less money coming in to cover benefits. That's how it works. That's one of the problems we have in Social Security. When Social Security was was created uh, back in, in uh, 1935, the number of active members paying into the program versus the number of folks receiving benefits out was about 40 to 1. Now, that declined over time as people became eligible for the benefits. In 1960, it sat at 5 to 1, five workers for every uh, retiree, every beneficiary receiving benefits out of Social Security. Now it's about 2.4 to 1. It's been cut in half in about 60 years, and that's putting enormous pressure on Social Security, and then folks are living longer and drawing benefits for a longer period of time. The same is true with respect to PERS. The number of em employees working in state government, in, public, in the public sector, paying into the program, relative to the number who have retired and are receiving benefits out, that has steadily declined over the last uh, uh, 20 years or so. That, that ratio has dropped rather considerably and that just puts more pressure on the program to make ends meet. So, yeah, you could go hire more people <laughs> to pay more in, which would help PERS. But then, of course, that would cost on the other side. It's kind of like plugging a dike. You plug a hole over here and another one, another one sprouts up in another area of, of, uh, of the dam there. So that's, uh, that's part of the issue. And we're going to have to continue to, to deal with that. Well, let's see. Uh, Jim in the Delta says, I can't find any way to talk to Mr. Presley or someone in his campaign. I just wanted to ask him a couple of simple questions, but you cannot talk to anybody who represents us. Thanks for passing that on, Jim. Of course, the invitation still stands here on middays. Mr. Presley is welcome to join us uh, at his uh, any, any, any uh, time uh, between now and the election. During our airtime, 10 to 1, weekdays, we're here. Come on the program. We'd love to speak to him and see what he thinks about um, his, uh, his possibility of being governor, what his vision is, what his priorities are. Now we already know that from his campaigns, but honestly, I'd say it's about two-thirds two uh, attacking Governor Tate Reeves, and maybe a third is focused on um, his plans, his vision. 
his priorities. But I'd like to talk to him about some of those and see how he intends to accomplish those and just also ask him some questions about some of the challenges of his, uh, his plans, his priorities, his, his policy stances. Well, let's see what else we got. Uh, I remember cell phone area codes are based on where the phone holder lived. This is on the ceasefire tax line. When they were assigned that number, my 850 area code is due to my living in the Pensacola area. When I got my number, I have lived in the Hattiesburg area for the past nine years. Yeah, that's absolutely true um, on the ceasefire tax line. I think Biden's 37% approval was established prior to the events of 10-7 in Israel, not according to this latest Gallup poll. I hear what you're saying. And the reason that was brought up, also said enjoy your show, thanks for what you do. Really appreciate that. And the reason I brought that up is because uh, Gallup is saying that the, that the, the decline, rather steep decline of 11 points from last month to this month is uh, in, in the favorability of Joe Biden by Democrats specifically is because many Democrats are upset with President Biden for uh, showing support and declaring support for Israel in this conflict in the Middle East. That many of them honestly are just sympathizers to Hamas, and they are upset that the president and most of government um, has seen to show support for Israel in uh, this situation and not uh, not the um, and not Hamas uh, let's see I was just looking at the details of the of the poll itself yeah this Gallup poll was actually taken after that October 23rd is when this came so this was after the attack, and yeah, the, the support declined considerably, some 11 points by Democrats. He went from 86 to 75 just by Democrats, 11-point decline. Folks, we're taking a break right here in the Element Well studio at the Oxford Conference Center. We'll come, we're coming right back. Going beyond the headlines, breaking down the stories that matter to Mississippi. Middays with Gerard on Super Talk Mississippi. smooth horn section of Chicago Saturday in the park we're live at the Oxford Conference Center for the University of Mississippi School of Business Banking Symposium this broadcast partially brought to you by Citizens Bank instead of being in the insurance business this is on the ceasefire text line why doesn't the state see what insurance companies can offer state employees in coverage and prices certainly could that would cost more money I can assure you 
I can assure you, because the state of Mississippi is a self-funded plan, and the reason that many large organizations seek self-funding, even though they have a third-party administrator, what's called a TPA, is because it's just generally much less money. The, the fact of the matter is the state of Mississippi has uh, experienced or state employees, the pool of employees in the plan, they've experienced uh, an unusually high amount of, uh, of patient care expenses burdening the program, and premiums certainly are not keeping up. Now, in the private sector, in the commercial insurance world, uh, reports from industry analysts are indicating that we can all expect even private coverage, commercial coverage, to rise rather considerably next year in some parts of the country as much as 20%. In fact, family coverage, that would be the most expensive. That would, that would be for a, a two-parent, uh, two-caretaker household and children, family coverage. That is expected to average about $24,000 a year next year. That's $2,000 a month for family coverage. Coverage for an individual is going to come in at about $12,000 a year. Now, that also does not take into consideration the cost of, of uh, out-of-pocket expenses that uh, an individual or a family must bear in the form of co-pays and uh, co-insurance and deductibles, and, and that, can, that can be in accordance with federal law up to $9,100 a year. So it's incredibly expensive, and it's going to keep getting uh, more expensive. And inflation is a, is a large part of this. And the other thing is the providers, hospitals in particular, they're just having to pay staff more uh, because of the labor market dynamics. Lots of folks, especially in COVID, lots of healthcare professionals, just left the industry altogether. It just burned them out, drove them crazy. And they have uh, sought occupations in other industries, and they're having a hard time recruiting new folks into the industry. And in order to do so, they're having to pay them a whole lot more money. And that's why we're seeing so many of the hospitals in our state and across the nation, frankly, that are struggling from a financial perspective. Let's see. Bob and Starkville says Brandon will never come on the show because he is a fraud. Eric says, instead of being in the insurance business, oh, we already got that. But I, I did say this earlier. This is from 2018. I'm 52 years old, Eric uh, said, back in 2018, old, old and have voted for Republican candidates for governor since I was old enough to vote. That being said, there's no way in hell I vote for Tate Reeves. <laughs> he did get elected in 2019. Where do you stand now, Eric? Are you going to vote uh, for Mr. Presley in the upcoming general election? Are you still of the posture that you will not cast your vote for Governor Tate Reeves. Jason and Starkville says that high is going to knock me out of the health insurance business. It's a big old problem, uh, no doubt about it. And Joe Biden's running around the country bragging about all the, uh, the improvements he's made and the cost reductions that have been realized uh, in health care expenses in this country. I just don't think he is really... Uh, rooting that analysis in any facts. The Daily Mississippian, that is the newspaper that is published daily, as the name implies, at the University of Mississippi. The editorial board yesterday, yesterday endorsed Brandon Presley for governor. This is what they say. The next era of administration in Mississippi's executive office will require strong leadership 
Our next governor should be someone who will wield the power of the office with integrity. It demands a candidate who is willing to address issues on the hearts and minds of all Mississippians with urgency, concern, and care. It is the opinion of the Daily Mississippians editorial board that the person in Brandon Presley, that this person is Brandon Presley, public service commissioner for the Northern District of Mississippi and Democratic candidate for governor. They do, however, you should know, they take uh, exception and they condemn uh, Mr. Presley uh, on his views on LGBTQ matters and uh, gender transition surgery for minors, two things that the governor, the present governor, has uh, certainly uh, been opposed to. We passed legislation. He signed off on it. Uh, legislation that bans medical professionals from prescribing hormones and performing surgeries and otherwise what is known as gender-affirming care. It's really mutilation of young bodies, let's be honest about it. Uh, the, the editorial board says gender-affirming care is defined as sex-appropriate medical procedures that help one transition from the sex assigned at birth to the gender they wish to be identified as. And uh, go on to say, though the Mississippi Democratic Party issued a swift condemnation of the new law, Presley has stated that he would not reverse the legislation and generally that he does not support such, such procedures for minors. He's also, supported, also stated that he does not support boys playing girls' sports. So he is more aligned with uh, Republicans in those viewpoints, but he is counter- and contradictory to the Democrat viewpoint and the Democrat position on those issues. And, and so the Daily Mississippian Editorial Board has seen fit to essentially overlook those and to accept those issues still coming out w with respect to Presley's view on it, which is consistent with the governors in that regard, but still coming out in support of Mr. Presley. And they also talk about uh, his priority of expanding Medicaid, they say, to 220,000, they being the editorial board in the article, 220,000 Mississippians, and, and that, that number is a bit fluid, honestly. It's, it's pretty difficult to tell exactly how many it is. It's been estimated to be anywhere from 150,000 to 220,000. Also, that Mr. Presley intends to create a website for residents to compare the cost of medicine. I, I think that is, is grossly overstated in terms of any value that you may expect from that. Uh, and I don't know exactly what he has in mind. I'd love for him to come on the program to talk about that. I thought, Rhino, that we passed legislation at the federal level that Im increases transparency of medical expenses and costs. So I'm not sure what he's talking about with respect to that. He also, of course, uh, intends to appoint a director of Medicaid who has a background in health care, uh, which I think is, uh, is completely misguided. We need someone who understands public policy. The Medicaid program is brutally complicated. It's law who understands economics. The director of Medicaid is not involved in making clinical decisions and understanding basic the basics of, of uh, medical treatment and health care does not require one to have a, a degree. 
uh, or some sort of medical doctor status. That's just crazy. If that's the case, then we, we should uh, not elect anyone who's governor that doesn't have a medical uh, doctor designation because that's a big part of what they oversee. The Medicaid program is about 20% of total spending. So that just doesn't make any sense in, in my view. I think uh, Drew Snyder, the current director of Medicaid, does a yeoman's job and has surrounded himself by a good staff and is, does not hesitate to call on the medical community health care professionals, of course, to help guide any, any matters that are important and, and that have to be dealt with from a Medicaid uh, perspective. I think that's grossly over, overblown. It is true that Mississippi is one of the ten states that has not expanded Medicaid. They do point that out uh, in the article. Um, and that one-third of Mississippi's hospitals are in danger of closing in the next three years. I think that figure is fluid. But the most important aspect of that, about that assertion that the editorial board is missing is that nobody's come forward and said, okay, this is what my financial picture would be like if we expanded Medicaid. I've called for that. I've called for hospitals to produce pro forma showing that, yet to see one do that. This is what it was like without Medicaid expansion. This is what it'd be like if we did expand Medicaid. And once again, it's that circular logic you talked about yesterday, Rhino, that I pointed out on the show. You're saying that people are dying because they don't have coverage, and then you're also saying that people are getting medical treatment, but they're not paying for it. Which is it? Which is it, editorial board? This is, this is the flaw in these arguments. Sure, Medicaid expansion, put that on the table as part of an overall discussion about how to address the health care situation uh, in Mississippi and, frankly, the country. But I, I question as to what role exactly government should play in that. Hey, let's start by stripping out the, the certificate of need laws. We ought to do that. Why are we pushing people to sign up in the health care exchanges where the cost of premiums is at zero as long as they have some income? Uh, at at least 100% of the federal poverty level. Coming right back with George Gammons from the Citizen Bank. That'll wrap up the program today from Oxford. Thank you, Birmingham! Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a journey record jacket from the 1980s. Gerard Gibbert. Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We're live from the Oxford Conference Center for the University of Mississippi School of Business a Banking a Symposium. This coverage is brought to you in part by the Citizens Bank, offering commercial and consumer checking accounts and CDs at competitive rates. And we welcome to the program now George Gammons, Northwest Regional President, the Citizens Bank. George, good to see you again. Great to see you as well, Gerard. Always good to be back here in Oxford. Doesn't seem like a year has gone by since we did this. Yeah. Uh, great place to be this time of year in the fall. We talked to Dr. Sire earlier on in the program. He kicked us off of the broadcast today, and he was uh, discussing the slate of speakers and the subject matter they're covering. Uh, sounded quite interesting. The banking industry has changed a lot. It's way more dynamic, and it's subject to a, a lot of, uh, of change on a daily basis, almost an hourly basis. Uh, so it's, it's not uh, the old kind of 
status quo, boring industry it was 30, 40 years ago, it's, it's something now. It is. We've got a lot of technology being leveraged to gain efficiencies in the banking industry. Of course, we're going through a unique cycle right now with the inverted yield curve on interest rates. And uh, liquidity is a big uh, issue for the banking industry right now. Uh, deposits in particular, every bank you talk to, every banker in the room today talking about deposits mm. and the need to grow those mm -hmm. to fund future loans sure. and so forth. Uh, you've seen a lot of runoff to the brokerage houses. I think to the tune of about a trillion and a half over the last year. So, uh, like you said, a lot of change yeah. going on. You need to be innovative and adaptive to be successful. I hadn't thought about that. So, but that does make a lot of sense. You, you've maybe seen some uh, some liquid assets just being siphoned off by the uh, brokerage houses and, exactly. and wealth managers, which just means that's less liquidity and and, and less in the way of deposits and. Um, on your balance sheets that uh, from your depositors, and that's just less money you got to, to loan and, and invest. That's correct. That's correct. Um, some specifics with our bank, the Citizens Bank of Philadelphia. The last year, we brought in a new president who I think yeah. you interviewed earlier today, Stacey, Stacey yeah. Brantley. And with that, we've brought in some new initiatives to the bank to really improve uh, the way we operate. We've decentralized some of our loan processes to be quicker, more responsive to our customers, more local decision-making, which is always good. Uh, local folks have their finger on the pulse and know how to adapt, and, and everything goes along with that. So it's been a, a great year so far. A lot of uh, headwinds mentioned on the national front with inflation. just seems to be eating everybody's paycheck. And, of course, the higher interest rates, if you're borrowing money, first-time homebuyers, especially these younger folks, you know, very difficult get in the game uh, a lot of folks extending the renting period and so forth but on the deposit side on the flip side like some of the folks we know uh, have good baby boomers with cash balances yeah. it's, it's really a, a good thing for them to earn these higher balances after years of earning less than one percent on a uh, deposit account so we've got a mixed bag of yeah. things we're dealing with right now yeah, full compliment and, and and that's I guess the positive aspect of the industry is there there's been really an expansion of, of the spectrum of, of services and products that you guys can offer through the years. That's that's grown quite a bit. Yeah, uh, back to the technology front, the ITMs, uh, interactive teller machines are a new way where you can have one teller in a location to service multiple uh, branches or locations. Hmm. Uh, hmm. Also the remote deposit capture. Uh, you're yeah. able to deposit your check uh, from your telephone now. Yeah. An iPhone, take a picture, send it in, same-day credit versus having to go wait in line in the bank. So that's another uh, recent uh, innovative feature that a lot of banks are going to now. And the list goes on now. We've got an AI uh, part of the symposium here this afternoon to address that specific issue. I'm sure I'll learn a few new things with that as well. But it's an ever-evolving and changing Field for sure. No doubt about it. And the industry is investing heavily in AI. I mean, and typically the community banks kind of follow suit with what the big big guys are sure. doing. And we, we've seen Jamie Dimon uh, talk about that quite a bit uh, with J.P. Morgan, and they're making massive investments in, in that arena. And that that's going to, I think, improve everything for well, everybody. Well, it's good for the consumer. Yeah. Uh, any any time you can cut down on inefficiencies yeah. and, like we said, really need no need to go into bank unless you're depositing cash. Um, you know, if you're depositing checks or getting money out or transferring money, that can all be done at fingertips now yeah. with uh, 
different technology. No substitute for the personal touch, and I know you guys really pride yourself on that. Do a great job there, and, and certainly everybody I've met are the type of people you'd like to do business with. Sure. The, the local decision-making and local processing, just it, that's really our niche and where we find uh, where our bank is situated. You know, you mentioned Jamie Dimon and some of the bigger banks out there versus uh, the, the smaller community banks. We're sort of in the middle. We really feel like we can leverage the, the technologies and the products of the big banks, but yet provide that local decision-making and service. And so, that's that's good model for the state of Mississippi because that's absolutely. what we, we consist of, lots of uh, small and mid-sized communities, but they, they have those same needs as the big guys do. Yep. George, appreciate you coming on. Thanks a lot. Always a pleasure. Good to see you, George. All right. Yes, take sir. care. All right, folks, that's it for today. We have enjoyed our time here at the Oxford Conference Center hosting middays for the Ole Miss School of Banking, excuse me, the School of Business Banking Symposium. Got that out right. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. We will be back in the studio on Monday. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.